If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. So for today's episode, I thought what would be a good idea would be to sometimes go and seek out critiques of anarchism, whether it's anarchism by itself or Christian anarchism or if a Christian can be an anarchist, etc., and to take criticisms of that and to sort of break them down and see if we can offer sort of like a counter critique or a rebuttal of sorts to people who would oppose the idea of biblical anarchism. I was actually surprised to find that when I Googled, I think I typed into Google just can a Christian be an anarchist or why Christians can't be anarchists? The top results were actually encouraging. There were multiple results right from the get-go where people were saying, well, you can, and people were saying maybe like why they weren't, but just saying that like they're not completely incompatible. Would see like the top result was freethinkingministries.com and they said, oh, they absolutely can be. Here's all the reasons why Christian anarchists explain why they're anarchists. And although you can certainly say that the Bible doesn't explicitly require you to be an anarchist and that Christians can disagree over political beliefs and stuff like that, that there's nothing that's withholding a Christian from being an anarchist if they think that is the best political system. So I thought that was cool. There were some others, obviously, if you scroll down long enough, where that people are not so up on it. One that caught my eye was actually a very brief critique of anarchism and coming from the perspective of the Bible from the website gotquestions.org, which is a resource that I feel like anyone who's done any sort of digging on Google, searching for verses or for Christian explanations for different topics, they've probably stumbled across gotquestions.org. And I say they're a fairly reputable, fairly useful online resource. And so I wanted to see what they said about it. So this is gotquestions.org, and the title of this article says, Question, What Does the Bible Say About Anarchy or Anarchism? So this is the answer that they give. And we'll kind of go line by line through this reading it and stop wherever I think I want to stop to sort of expound upon something or to push back against it. So they say, Anarchy is usually considered to be the chaos that erupts at the lack of governmental authority in a society. So it reads, Anarchy is usually considered to be the chaos that erupts at the lack of governmental authority in a society. Right off the bat, I have to stop there because of a little bit of issue with starting out the answer in the article that they give with defining anarchy in this way. I'm not going to say it's disingenuous, but it's certainly misguided. Now, I can't fault them too much because anyone who does just a surface level analysis of anarchy by like doing a Google search of the term, 
they're going to find a lot of similar definitions to that. The idea that anarchy is lawlessness or political disorder or the absence of governmental authority. If you've been listening to this show and you think back to what we talked about in the very first episode, or if you're just familiar with the subject in general, we know that that's not really the case. When you do a deeper dive into what actual anarchists believe, both the original anarchists and the version of anarchism that I ascribe to, anarcho-capitalism, the founder of which was Murray Rothbard, well, the idea that the anarchy is a complete lack of rules and laws and a complete lack of any sort of thing that we could point to and call government and the idea that it's just chaos, those aren't the things that any anarchist has really proposed that they're in favor of. You know what I mean? They're talking about rather the absence of a centralized authority. And the idea that the only two options are centralized authority that is backed by some sort of fiat or like a threat of violence if you do not recognize that one true monopoly over authority and government, and that the only other option is a complete lack of government or authority is a logical non sequitur. It's a false dichotomy. Because you can have governmental structures that are decentralized rather than centralized. And they can be decentralized all the way down to not being tied to a specific geographic region. And this is true of all anarchist beliefs. The way that anarcho-capitalism generally describes this sort of process would be a polycentric legal order a legal order that is created through the market by competing systems of courts and laws and dispute resolution organizations that work to provide peaceful, nonviolent means for people to work out their problems, to contract for the defense of their life and their property. And in a way, you can view this as competing structures of authority and government. So again, the idea that anarchy is the abolition of government, well, the only way that people come to that conclusion is because centuries of propaganda and brainwashing might seem like a strong word, but it kind of is. It's indoctrination of a sort to believe that the state and government are really like one in the same thing and that you couldn't have government without the state. Really, government is just the process of conducting rules or laws. And that doesn't need to be done through a centralized authority, especially not a centralized authority that claims its authority by force rather than through voluntary agreements. Now, a common objection to this people will raise is if you have competing governments, what if one government has laws that differ from another government? But the problem is this is a description of the status quo. We already have that. We have that within America because we have different states that all have different laws. And although there's overlap, there's also differences. And so they have to find ways to solve problems, even when their laws don't quite match up. And then we also have countries that have different laws and that neighbor each other. And although there's certainly way more violence and war in society than I would like to see, there are plenty of examples of people living in areas that have different laws, and these neighboring regions are not in a constant state of warring against each other. Rather, they come up with 
contracts and ways to deal with issues that arise between those two parties. And they're able to do that on a large scale. And there's a argument to be made, a very potent argument, in my opinion, that if these sort of contractual arrangements in terms of how to deal with problems between governmental bodies was decentralized to more localized levels and funneled through market forces, that this could be done more efficiently and less costly even nation states tend to conduct that process. But at the end of the day, the idea that competing governmental authorities would lead to violence is not always necessarily true, because not only do we have examples of competing governmental authorities not going to war, but we have examples of centralized authorities going to war with each other. And so really, and this is there are arguments that other anarchists have made, you sort of end up either needing to agree with the idea that you can have competing governmental agencies, which just turns the idea of needing a centralized authority on its face, or you have to advocate for one world government, which even your most staunch socialist or progressive or nationalist is going to not usually be in favor of, although there are certainly some people who would. But if I could get you to agree with just the fact that there shouldn't be one world government, that there should be at least some competition between governments, then really we're just talking about a matter of scaling and sort of how big or small and decentralized these government agencies should be and how should they derive their authority. So it's about the size, the scope. It's about the layers of decentralization. And then also the means by which governmental agencies derive their authority matters too, from a moral perspective and certainly from a Christian perspective. Because to act like authority that's claimed via fiat or the threat of force for noncompliance versus authority that's earned through the market and through voluntary exchanges are on equal moral footing, I think is also problematic. And I think that there's a lot within moral philosophy and within Christian moral philosophy looking at what the scriptures say about authority and about what we're supposed to do as Christians that would push back against the idea that you can reconcile Christian values and following in the example of Jesus with the idea of using the threat of violence to whip a group of people into compliance with your geographical designated authority that you want to designate. Rather, competing governmental agencies that are earning the people who are contracting with them through voluntary agreements and contracts, not only is this a much more ethical way to construct governmental agencies, but then market forces can actually lead to a better outcome and product over time. So again, right away, the idea that anarchy is chaos and just the lack of governmental authority, not only is that not true, not only is the definition of anarchy being the lack of authority just a, a non sequitur, going back to the idea of chaos, there are plenty of nations that exist where you have the existence of a state and what people would point to as a centralized governmental authority where it's not safe at all and the streets are filled with chaos. I think that even we've seen that happen in America over the last few years. And there are some areas of the country where that's almost perpetual, where crime is so high that people don't feel safe. And you could say that chaos is really what is ruling the day. So the idea that anarchy is equatable to chaos and that the state is equatable to order and that government can only exist through 
a centralized authority that we would refer to as the state. These are all things that are just on their face, not true, even if, let's say you don't agree with me on the idea of the anarchical conception of government, that's fine. You might think that centralized authority is better, but it would still be inaccurate to push this definition of anarchy as being normative because it's just not, once you kind of dive past a surface level analysis, it really doesn't hold. All right, so let's keep going and see if we can get through this here. So second sentence, picking back up. However, anarchism, the theory that society is improved when people freely rule themselves apart from all laws. Again, not true. You can have laws and rules and things that people are held to via contracts and via voluntary arrangements and treaties that people construct for themselves. You don't need a centralized state or government for there to be laws. Again, just not true. Is touted as a worthy goal or ideal by those who reject the necessity of governing authority. So they're kind of repeating themselves there. Again, we're not rejecting the idea of the necessity for laws. And again, we need rights. We need property rights. Okay, people own themselves. They have a right to their bodies and to their property. And if their property rights are violated in some way, for there to be peace, there needs to be government in the sense that there needs to be the adjudicating of people's rights and of of justice when rights are violated. But now we're not having a debate over should there be law and order, but rather a debate over the means by which we arrive at law and order or we execute those laws and construct them. This is much more like a engineering problem, how to build the functioning car rather than denying the necessity or the utility of the car itself. And it's a debate over is market-based polycentric conceptions of government superior to centralized fiat nation-state versions of government. Picking back up in the article now, when prevailing authorities have been overruled or removed, usually by force, anarchy results as every person becomes his or her own authority. We see examples of anarchy during riots, when police have been fought back and the crowd becomes a looting, destroying entity. So if anarchy is to be equated with people looting and violating people's rights, when the state does that, is that suddenly not anarchy? Like when the police do civil asset forfeiture or when, you know, the government does taxation or when the government, for all the different reasons that government can, impedes upon the rights of the people that they're claiming to exist to protect. Why is the government destroying and taking property considered to be orderly and natural, but, you know, when other people do it, that is anarchy? It seems to me we have a bit of a double standard. Back to the article. While it may seem ideal for a society to operate without oversight, again, that's just wrong. The reality is not so pretty because of the heart of man is evil continually. And they cite Genesis 6-5, Romans 3-10, Jeremiah 17-9. Reading on, since the Garden of Eden, mankind has loved the idea of self-rule. And they cite Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7. In fact, the motivation behind most sin is the insistence upon being one's own God. All right, well, you know I'm going to have something to say about that. I mean, I've actually done a whole episode that was inspired upon the temptation in the Garden the Genesis 3 story. And so there's part of this that is true and and part of it that is not true. It is certainly true in a sense that the sin of the garden was definitely 
inspired by sort of the motivation for Eve and Adam to be like God in a sense, that they could, again, Satan said that you will be like God, knowing good from evil, knowing being sort of like knowing in the godly sense and being the source of knowledge and power to define the reality around us and to dictate our own destiny along the lines of what is good and what is wrong. And so in that way, for us to act as our own God or own rulers in the sense of deciding what is right and wrong, well, that is rebellion against God, and that is also idolatry in a sense. But there's a conflation here. And conflating the sort of rebellion against God and the desire to sort of like be capital R rulers as opposed to God and conflating that with the idea of like self-governance is conflating vertical and horizontal relationships. Yes, along the vertical relationship between God and his creation, we are to be submitted to God. We are supposed to be holding God up with our worship and our praise and our obedience, which of course we fall short of, but through God's grace, we can be redeemed anyway, and we can seek to be perfected and to be made more righteous even while we live in this fallen world. And so in that way, if we try to rebel against that natural order and we try to act in roles or in ways that are reserved only for God, or if we're trying to ascribe to ourselves some sort of glory or worship that belongs to God alone, that is absolutely sinful. And that is absolutely a violation of basically the first and second commandment. But in horizontal relationships, well, if God is king, again, if we are to render unto God what is God's, what is there left to render unto Caesar? Is any man really fit to be a ruler over other men? Well, not only would I say just logically speaking that if men are sinful and not capable of being self-rulers in terms of that vertical relationship, well, they're going to be grossly underqualified even more so to try to lead other men. And in some ways, that is continuing to violate that vertical relationship because only God really has that authority to act as a ultimate ruler over men as the creator. That role is for God, not for us. Also, though, let's think back to passages like Mark 10 where Jesus says that the Gentiles seek to wield their positions of power and authority over one another and to act as archists, but it shall not be that way among you. I think that command extends to all of us. And I think that we are not supposed to live in our relationships with other people in society in ways where our hierarchies would be constructed, where there is groups of men sitting at the top who have special rights or privileges or power over other men. And that is really what is sort of fundamental to this question of how are we defining self-rule or self-governance? If self-government means we don't need God, well, that is a bit of an issue. But when anarchists describe self-governance as merely not needing a group of men by fiat claiming authority and claiming to have the right and the privilege to not really be held to the same standard as everyone else, that is not idolatrous. Rather, I think it's the opposite of idolatry. I think it's rather compatible with a consistent application of biblical principles to say that, hey, if God says do not murder, and God says do not steal, and God says do not covet, 
And if God says through Paul in Romans 13 that governing authorities are not to be a terror to those who do good works, but rather only to those who do evil, who violate the rights of other people, then, you know, maybe whoever is in acting in sort of authority should not have any power or rights that the rest of humanity doesn't have. And maybe the problem is elevating people to a status where they would have those special rights or powers or privileges is to elevate them into a godlike position. And it's also to elevate them into a status where they will now be violating the sort of purpose and namesake by which they are claiming that authority in the first place. Again, hearkening back to that observation that Rothbard made, which is that the state government rather exists through the explicit violation of property rights. And so we can't uphold property rights by violating property rights. It's not logically consistent, and I would argue it's not biblically consistent. And so, again, I think that the error that they're making here is a conflation of horizontal and vertical relationships. The vertical relationships, yes, we cannot as humanity act as self-rulers. We cannot act as God in being able to define what is right and wrong. That is sort of what governments and states do. States pass laws and sort of act as arbiters of right and wrong through fiat, through force. They're just like kind of God said in 1 Samuel 8. He's like, you're going to ask for this king, and this king is someone that you're placing over you, and in doing so, you're rejecting me as your king. If only God is king, if only Christ is king, then no other man has a right to take the position of a king, and a democratic republic is still bestowed with the same powers of the king. It's just that power is spread out among a group of people through a different process, but the end result is still the same. It's still the violating of property rights in the name of protecting property rights. All right, so back to the article now. We don't want anyone else, including our creator, to tell us what to do. We imagine that the throwing off of all restraints equals freedom, and that if left alone, we and our neighbors could exist peacefully, coexist peacefully, without enforcement of laws or standards. But this utopian dream has never proved true. Every society that has tried anarchism has ended in anarchy and disorder. Wow. Wow. Gosh. I don't know if I really noticed that the first time I read it, but I swear I am, or I shouldn't swear, but I promise you I am not making this up. It literally says every society that has tried anarchism has ended in anarchy and disorder, which they already defined anarchy as being disorder. So it's like they basically said, Anarchy ends in anarchy and anarchy. It's just, again, I feel like I've gotten good information from gotquestions.org before, but this one is not really hitting the mark there. It's full of one logical fallacy after another. I'm going to finish this paragraph and then I'll respond more to all of that, but I couldn't, I couldn't even get through that sentence reading it out loud. It's one of those things where if you read a sentence through or you're just kind of like reading to yourself, it won't necessarily jump out at you. But when you read something out loud, man, does it sound really silly to say something like that. So uh, picking back up, sinful man has come to believe that our need for governing authority is a flaw that needs correcting. Yet the Bible presents a different story. Well, again, this is kind of some of this is repeating. But so we imagine that throwing off restraints equals freedom and we could peacefully coexist without the no. We imagine that we could peacefully coexist with our neighbors if we didn't have the threat of force and violence constantly being put upon us and having violence and sort of 
the indoctrination to accept that sort of like background level of violence ingrained into people, it would probably be easier for us to live at peace with one another if we didn't have that. It's sort of like, imagine complaining about your marriage and saying that there's not really a lot of peace in your marriage. And they go to a marriage counselor and counselor says, well, like, walk me through a day in your life. And it's like, well, we wake up and we pull out our guns and we point them at each other. Or it's like, we wake up and we decided that we can't have a state of anarchy between each other. So we hired a gunman to constantly be pointing guns at us to make sure that we are not hurting each other. Now, that, that sounds like I'm being hyperbolic, but really it isn't. Because when the state is the monopoly of force and the monopoly of law and government, every law is backed by the threat of violence. And a lot of laws are just violently enforced on a daily basis. Essentially, believing that the state, a centralized government, created by fiat is necessary for peace is saying that people can't sort out conflicts or live peaceably with each other unless there is constantly the threat of violence being made towards one another. It'd be one thing for maybe a non-Christian to sort of make the argument that, well, you need violence for there to be peace, but there's a lot in the Bible that's going to stand in the way of making the claim that we can't have peace in society unless we are constantly threatening each other with violence, a sort of like mutually assured... Dis now, there is something sort of like, there is the implicit threat of defensive violence if someone violates our rights, but that is different. I would say that that is sort of what naturally exists without the state. Without the state, the natural order is sort of like, well, I know if I hurt you, there's a good chance you're going to hurt me back. But when the state is involved and this authoritarian strongman and this power system is involved, what ends up happening is people find ways to wield that power and that the statist apparatus and the laws that the state makes against each other and find ways to do things and then find cover behind the law. And people find that they are, because they're indoctrinated to just kind of follow what the state government laws say, they find themselves even sometimes just like deafened to everyday atrocities or everyday violations of people's rights and sort of going along with it because that's the way that they were raised to do so. And that happens in small ways sometimes that seem benign, but it's that sort of indoctrination to just follow the law that leads to well, I was just following orders in Nazi Germany. One necessarily leads to the other. And that normalization of violence on the small scale gets ramped up over time. So it's not that we imagine that throwing off restraints equals freedom. We imagine that freedom means something other than having guns constantly pointed at us. We imagine that peaceful coexistence does require enforcement of property rights and the adjudication of civil governments and justice. But it doesn't require that to be monopolized by, and again, it's this conflation of the state with order and anarchy with disorder, as they then say in the very next sentence, where they just say, anarchy ends in anarchy. <laughs> and sinful man has come to believe that our need for governing authority is a flaw that needs correcting. But no, we do need governing authority. But that governing authority does not have to be centralized through a system of institutionalized violence. But let's read on and see 
they end that paragraph with saying that the Bible presents a different story. Well, let's hear what that story is, according to gotquestions.org. God instituted law from the beginning of history, Genesis 2, 16 through 17. I wonder what they're saying there. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You will surely eat of every tree in the garden. And 17 says that of the tree of knowledge. They're going back to Genesis 2 here. Yes, so law is, yeah, there are laws. Laws are, And then they go on to say laws are merely boundaries that keep us safe and ensure human interactions are fair and honest. Agreed. But boundaries must have consequences for violating them, or they are merely suggestions. Again, agreed. Without consequences, opinions become the basis for rules, and we know that everyone has a different opinion. It is difficult enough for a group of friends to decide where to eat dinner. Far more difficult is the building of civilization based upon varied opinions. You know what I do when I'm out with my friend group and we can't decide where we eat is I pull a gun out and I point it at everybody and I tell them where we're going to go eat. And they're thankful that I have brought order to the chaos and anarchy that we were in. (laughs) No, perhaps there's a false dichotomy here. Perhaps the idea that the only way to solve societal problems or people disagree is either to live in chaos or to appoint someone with a gun to tell everyone else what to do. Maybe that's just, again, fallacious thinking and a complete falsity in presenting two options alone and not pursuing the alternatives. I'm beginning to repeat myself here. I don't want to just ignore the rest of the article. I want to see what it has to say. But we kind of see that they're going to keep making this conflation between the state and government this entire article, and they're not acknowledging what real anarchist political theory is, which is, again, not the absence of legal order. It's a decentralized or polycentric legal order. Poly meaning many. It's not one center. It's varied. It's a multitude of competing governing structures that interact and improve and are built upon consent and voluntary exchanges and transactions and have much more incentivization to actually provide the product to their consumers because it turns out that when you force people to only buy the one option that's being supplied to them, for one, there's really no incentive to do a good job because they have no choice but to buy from you. They can't go and buy from the competing government government organizations or dispute resolution organizations that are available in the area or now that with the invention of the internet that can be available just at their fingertips. They don't have a choice between Android or Apple or Google or etc. There's one choice being given to them and that monopoly supplier knows that they can get away with whatever they want, essentially. I mean, people can try to move out of that area, I guess, but when you have a government as big as the United States of America, it's not that easy to move sometimes. And when all you can move to is other countries that are employing the same nation-state game, the choices are there, but you're choosing really who you want to be your slave master, in a sense. It's a choice, but it's not exactly a free choice. But yes, I will agree with the article that laws, in terms of like the boundaries for 
human actions need to be enforced or they're merely suggestions, but that enforcement mechanism should be something that Christians seek to have standards applied to those, and the standards should be the smallest amount of force and violence as possible, and really to avoid violence and force if at all possible. Again, we're, we're instructed to live at peace with all as far as it depends upon us, to love our neighbors and to love our enemies, and that to be a leader is to be a servant. And yes, we are to stop those who do evil. And no anarchist is going to sit there and lose their minds if there's someone out there who is committing violence and you go stop them. That is not something that any serious, you know, like anarchist of conscience and of someone who's actually looked into anarchist philosophy and identifies as it from a point of first principles is going to object to. Yes, there are some people who would go out there, you know, you might think of groups like Antifa or whatnot who identify as anarchists and they go out there and they loot and they rob and they steal. And so you might say, what about them? Well, there are examples of people using a label and giving it a bad name. Christians should be especially sensitive and sympathetic to that because there are plenty of people who go around using that label and making a mockery of it. Imagine if everyone defined Christianity by Joel Olstein or by random Christian cult leaders. You know, no one, Christians wouldn't appreciate that. And, you know, anarchists also don't appreciate being defined by the minority of bad actors that exist out there who use the label in vain. The, the end of that paragraph there says, from one person's viewpoint, it is right to love our neighbors. From another's, it is right to eat them. So whose viewpoint wins? The battle of opposing views can lead to anarchy. Well, how does the state solve this? And how does the state solve this in a unique way that anarchist governments and anarchist legal orders would fail to solve? Let me tell you something, if the majority of people in society think it's okay to eat their fellow human beings, the state's probably going to normalize that because, you know, politics is downstream of culture. But if you have state and it's neighboring a group of people who think it's right to eat each other, well, they're still in a state of anarchy, right? That's kind of what I alluded to earlier, that like if in Germany it is legal to hold slaves and in France it isn't, well, if a slave leaves one country, goes to the other, how do you figure that out? They're in a state of anarchy and they have to figure it's it's... Yes, there is always going to be a problem in terms of competing legal structures having to figure out how to coexist. That problem isn't really unique. It's called society. The problem that this article is making here is that it's sort of like imagining that, well, when humans disagree, they're in a state of anarchy. And so that has to be solved. And so we'll impose the state and that solves the problem. That's such a superficial answer, because clearly the introduction of a state doesn't solve the problem of human disagreements. The introduction of a state doesn't prevent people from having to solve their problems and to enter into conflict mediation and find ways to reconcile their differences. All the introduction of the state does is monopolize that process through a system of people who have the right to use violence against you if you don't exactly comply with the system of laws that they're imposing upon you. Rather, in an anarchical legal order, in a polycentric legal order, people go through that conflict problem-solving process with the motivation to do it cheaply because they want to do it cost-effectively and not waste resources, and to do it peacefully because 
no one wants to die. No one wants to get hurt. And using violence against people when you don't have the right to do so is not good for your well-being. And it is not good for business. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's actually true to say that violence is more expensive than freedom. And the only way that violence can be made to compete with peace on an economic level is through, and this is a topic that we'll have to get into one another episode. And so I grant I can't fully make this point here because it takes a bit, bit of time to do, but there's definitely within libertarian anarchist literature and writings and the work they've done on these different subjects, definitely strong, compelling arguments to be made that in a free market of everything, including government, violence is heavily disincentivized because it costs more than just finding peaceful alternatives to resolving conflicts. Now, one could say that there are some conflicts that will arise that can't be solved peaceably. And that's going to, of course, be true even in a hypothetical anarchy. But again, Look at how many times in history states have warred against each other. A lot of a good saying that has been used by a lot of prominent libertarian anarchists is that arguments against anarchy are often just descriptions of the status quo. And go, goodness, how many examples could we possibly point to of states going to war against each other and not finding peaceful ways to solve problems? So the idea that anarchy is chaos and always leads to violence, but statism is order and always leads to peace. Granted, anarchy is a hypothetical that can't be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, but statism is the status quo we find ourselves in, and it clearly doesn't deliver on the promises that it offers or that gotquestions.org is sort of implying that it's going to deliver on. There are always going to be, insofar as we live in this world and that we are fallen and that there are going to be problems. People are living with each other. There are going to be problems that have to be solved. And that's not always easy, but to act as if statism is the only solution is historically and logically incoherent. They go on to say Romans 13 tells us that God designed government and one of its primary functions is to avoid anarchy. Along with that divine authority comes the power to enforce the decided boundaries. And there, there were times in history when anarchy was the order of the day, which, fair enough, yes, and judges and whatnot, like I've talked about before, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and it never ended well. Well, statism hasn't always ended well. There was actually hundreds of years described in the books of Judges where people were living their lives and things were going along just fine. and. There's always going to be problems that arise, but again, if the argument against anarchy is it ends in war and conflict, again, that applies at least equally to the idea of statism, if not more, in my opinion. And then it says that first came blatant idolatry. Wow, it's a good thing that none of the kings of Israel never led Israel into idolatry and abandoning God. That definitely never happened. Definitely don't notice on my not-so-subtle sarcasm. And then God, and then it quickly followed by further lawlessness and demolition of society. Again, like I said earlier, in the beginning and just now, kings and governments are often the ones leading the charge in rebellion against God, leading the ones in the charge to define right from wrong in a way that's different from God and leading people into sin. 
state governments are often the first in line and the main culprits behind those sorts of things and behind the sort of violations of rights and the terrorizing of innocent people that we're supposed to believe that government's supposed to protect against. Because if they're going to cite Romans 13, Romans 13 says that the higher powers, that the godly authorities are not there to be a terror to those who do good works, but a terror to those who do evil, a minister to God for our good. And yes, the act of authorities carrying out civil governance and carrying out the administration of civil justice, that is God-ordained, and that is for our good, and we need that. But again, those governing authorities in Romans 13 are not explicitly described as a centralized authority built upon violence and coercion, and just descriptively, the state, by its very nature, goes against the very prescription that Romans 13 lays out, because the state historically is almost always violating the rights of the innocent and violating the rights and the peace of those who do good. And all too often, the state is run by the very ones who we would call evil. So the evil very often don't have anything to fear from the state. In fact, they gain power and protection from it. God then, continuing here, God had to rescue Israel from itself by sending a series of judges to keep the peace. Yeah, those judges weren't kings. Those judges didn't lead through the initiation of violence and coercion and fiat. Rather, they found ways to solve, the, they found ways to have peace and to solve their problems within the anarchy, which is an argument to my side of this debate, not to their side. He then sent a success, succession of kings, which he warned was a bad idea, and they completely gloss over that. God, the last paragraph says God's plan is not for us to live in anarchy or pursue anarchism, though we may chafe against unjust laws. Ooh, wait a second. If the state has laws that are unjust, can we rebel against them? Isn't that anarchy? So, yeah, we should obey all authorities and all things unless they require us to directly disobey God. Well, considering the state kills people and steals from them and violates so much of God's command, I think we can say that states are things that we probably have somewhat of a Christian duty to at least not be so quick to obey or follow in every instance. And I would push that to say that really, although I'm not, I think that as Christians, we shouldn't seek to violently overthrow state government. We should be the peacemakers. We should be calling for things to be more peaceful. And more peaceful means that things are being solved with less violence and not more violence. Again, anarchy is not about utopia, despite what this article tried to, and we're at the end of the article, despite what this article tried to suggest or imply, anarchy is not the insistence that if we remove the state, we will have utopia. It's rather the just obvious recognition that we have the state and it hasn't really delivered on the promises that it's said that it was going to deliver on. And that we're always going to have to solve problems in human society because there's always going to be disagreement and there's always going to be sin and people violating other people's rights. But perhaps we don't have a false choice between the monopoly of violence that is the state and just 
doing nothing and we end up just all shooting each other in a mad scramble to protect ourselves. There is an alternative. That alternative is voluntarism. That alternative is private governance, is polycentric governance, is no king but Christ. Let's not take on a seizing of power and of authority that belongs to God alone. Let's instead require our leaders to lead as Christ did by being servants. So, all right, well, that's it for today's episode. I hope that you found it worthwhile to listen to. Every episode is going to be a little something different. We have episodes where I'm going to be doing deep dives into specific passages in the Bible or touching on specific themes in the Bible. We're going to have guests on sometimes to go into particular subjects. And sometimes I think it's good to take on people's criticisms of anarchy and Christian anarchism and to just take them on head on and have an interaction of those ideas and to see where they match up and hopefully to make a persuasive case to, if you haven't completely bought onto this, to at least consider that maybe there's more than one solution to finding ways to live at peace with other men and to solve conflict and that we should at the very least be oriented towards finding peaceful solutions and creating as many different options for solutions as possible rather than always imposing that there must be one solution and it must be men with guns imposing rule and order by fiat because we see that not only is that not the only option but that option has questionable results so thanks for tuning in and we will be back again next week and take care until then. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.